Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. The only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today we're discussing Bran 1, Catelyn 1, and Daenerys 1 of A Game of Thrones. Enjoy! Hey, Daniel. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Oh, Welcome was... back, everybody. Time to get into the story itself. Yeah, I'm going to kick us off and I'll, I'll kind of walk, walk through the story a little bit. I know there's a few chapters we want to cover, and and I wanted to to kind of go over the chapter first, and then I'll go back. I'll add to, you know, where did we leave off? We obviously, last time we talked a lot about sort of who George R. R. Martin is, what these books are, what we kind of went over and in, in, in all of that, and some world setting as well. Uh, and then we also talked about the prologue, which was pretty intense. Uh, we had we had the Night's had Watch. fucking zombies. Yeah, and we had zombies. We had the others. Uh, and so clearly things are afoot, things are brew, and now we kind of kick off with chapter one, which is, which is brand. Uh, and so we start, basically, you know, the cold continues to play a big role here, but we have a party of the Stark family. And we realize pretty quick that Bran is, uh, I think, the not the youngest. I think there's a child or two beneath him as well in terms of age. But one of the younger sons of the Stark family coming to what is a real sort of uh, moment of, of manliness in his life. He is going to come witness the uh, execution. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's like a real day of becoming a man. Uh, in a weird way, it's almost like a circumcision. No, uh, but uh, he's going to come. That's, that's a different head, Michael. It's, it's a, different, a different head. Something's getting chopped. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but this is, this is a, a serious event for him. He's excited to be, you know, showing himself as a man. I think he's listed as seven or eight years old. Uh, and he's going to come and watch the first, uh, like an execution. He's now considered old enough to this. And so he's really putting on this sort of, uh, a manly performance, which is in, in the best of ways. He's there with his brothers. We meet, uh, Rob, his brother. We meet Jon Snow, his brother, who is a bastard, we are, are told. And they go and uh, and he watches his father basically perform a very stately act of beheading uh, someone who we find out is a, a deserter from the Night's Watch. The execution itself happens rather quickly and uneventfully. And they, on the ride home, uh, we, we come across sort of an interesting moment while there's wonderful conversation between father and son. And we're seeing a little bit of this you know, shift of what does it mean to hold the role of the leader of this area, in this case, Ned Stark, and being that sort of the, the, the head of state, if you will, uh, and then what it means to be a father for him and, and to take care of his sons as well. But we come across an interesting moment. Daniel, I'm sure you're unaware of this. Uh, we, we, find, we find a direwolf. Direwolf, the sigil of the Stark family here in the north. Obviously, everything's still covered in snow and that is not lost on us in the writing. It is cold. Um, but dire wolves, it turns out, are almost a mythical beast. These are things that are not really seen. And it's so, sort of, there's a little bit of unease going on around the dead dire wolf. What could this mean? And what is the symbolism? And it gets worse as we start to find there are living pups. Uh, and so there's discussion what to do with the pups. The first thought is execution. And uh, and then Jon Snow actually stands up and says, no, we, we uh, clearly there's a bond between Bran and one of these pups. There's just enough for you, Lord Stark, my father, uh, for your true children. Uh, and they, they save these pups. Um, from this, 
I mean, again, we'll go back and, and talk more about it, but this is really the crucial part about this first chapter seems to really be a lot about these pups and this direwolf. And I have a lot of notes that I want to talk about in a second, but the end of this, uh, this, this sort of moment, this chapter really, is that they find the direwolves, they decide to keep the direwolf pups. They find an interesting issue about how the direwolf died, which I'll come back to in a little bit. Uh, and then uh, they actually, they find in the last moment, an extra direwolf. It's an albino direwolf and Jon Snow gets one. So this was, this was an adjustment from the prologue. Uh, the prologue was pretty action intense. There was, yeah. there was a lot of directness about that story, which was, you know, there is a mystery out here. There is a danger out here. There's a bravado of, I forget his name already, you know, the main... The main Waymar guy. Royce. Yeah, that guy. Um, and he kind of gets his comeuppance because this isn't here. We come here now, things slow down a lot and not in a bad way, but yeah. there's a lot of, there are a lot of characters. And this was a big note for me coming through it because I've started trying to track mm -hmm. the characters. We have yeah. the Stark family. The Stark family is enormous. We have the lineage of the Stark family. Yep. And then we have the party, like of the Stark family. Yeah. And it's all of these people as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. come into play with that later as we get going. And uh I, I think one of my primary goals is to try and cut through the uh uh difficulty, the the kind of um what's the word I'm looking for here, the the barrier to entry that a lot of fantasy stories have where you get a million names thrown at you in a million places. Yep. And I'm going to try and give you a little bit more context so you can help focus in on the things that matter there. And we'll, we'll come to that. But I think you're really highlighting a, a great starting point, which is the way that this chapter, this first chapter in particular, with the first couple chapters as a whole relate to the prologue. And what we really had in the prologue that we talked a lot about last week was this dichotomy of uh, the, the contrasts that were going on in front of us, in particular between uh, the cold of the others, and that was causing that spookiness, mm -hmm. and the heat of the humans, uh, and how that translated through to the kind of scientific knowledge-based aspects of things, which we're going to see a little more of today, uh, versus the old stories and the myth and the legend. Yeah. And what I find really interesting here is we're going to get to Daenerys' first chapter in, in a little while, but you could very easily have an opening that draws a stark stark uh, contrast, a strict <laughs> contrast with the prologue by putting it somewhere south, by putting it somewhere warm, putting it somewhere hot. And you could start with Daenerys 1 and that would have satisfied that. And instead, like you were just saying, we have another cold area. We have the north. It's not quite past the wall, but it's south of the wall. And there's snow. It's summer, but there's snow on the ground. We get a lot of remarks about the cold, about the wind, about the chill. And the thing that's interesting here is that it starts blurring the lines between that dichotomy that we talked about last week. Because things are cold, but the cold isn't quite as evil. It's not quite as ominous mm -hmm. as last week. It's just a function of the trappings around them. And you have a lot of warmth coming through from the relationships between the characters. And a lot of that blood red imagery makes its way into this chapter despite the crispness of it. Yeah. And so you start to see that maybe the cold isn't strictly about the others. It's not strictly about that evil magical force, but there's something there in the middle. And I think the Starks are really the embodiment of that bridge between these worlds. And, and so this is a really helpful framing device from that perspective. And to that point as well, one of the things that really struck me, and it happens right at the very beginning of the chapter, as well as throughout, is uh, there is a difference between the tales 
and the in the moment experience. And one of the characters, one of the first named characters in this chapter is Old Nan. Uh, and Old Nan really just jumped out at me as this sort of this this you know uh, nanny style character, you know this this house yeah. maid or whatever it might be. But she's she's churning these stories, and I have to admit, I'm really glad to have had the prologue because what would potentially have been for me like a real throwaway comment of the stories of the others or whatever it is is now already supported by this very now real we moment. we already know she's right. She's exactly. literally right. And so and that I'll, really puts things into perspective there. I'll add, I think I was talking about this yet last week, but uh, the, the truth is, is I can already see myself, and especially in the coming chapter or two that we'll talk about, just getting already frustrated with the non-knowledge of the characters. I know more than yeah. they know. I want to yeah. shake them with this truth. Um, so, so let's start with that. What is it that you know that they don't know? That's that's right on page two. I think well, I know what you're getting Yeah, and, and that's that's such, like, like, you know, I, I'm not sure if this is what you're even referring to, but I think it's even, like for me, what stood out was the tale of this deserter. You know, so we yeah. have this. So really, who is he? Oh, is he? Wait, I had a question. Is that the same guy? Because I, I didn't, I didn't catch that. If it was this, our friend from from the very beginning. I forget his name. But the man they found banned hand and foot to the holdfast wall, awaiting the king's justice, was old and scrawny, not much taller than Rob. He had lost both ears and a finger to frostbite, and he dressed all in black, the same as the brother of the Night's Watch. Tell me, Michael, who's the brother of the Night's Watch that we've met who's missing both ears to frostbite? Oh, I didn't even remember that he was already missing both ears. That's so funny. I uh, I was actually... So yeah, this is Garrett. This is was... Garrett back again. Garrett has made it south of the wall. And as they say a bunch of times, you know, we're going to go beat by beat here, but a bunch of times throughout this chapter, he is deathly afraid and he can't even string words together. That's how yeah. scared he is. Yeah, and we so, know why, and they don't. That's so interesting that you say that because I was looking for his name. I was looking for the name of Garrett Gerard, or whatever and didn't hear it and see it. And I totally forgot about the ears already in our short little moments here. Uh, yeah. But sure enough, I will say that obviously he was talking about, you know, this fear. And the fear will continue to come up. I know even uh, Ned Stark will, will bring this back uh, in a little yeah. bit when he talks to Bran. But uh, but that's that's incredible. I, I, I honest, honestly didn't didn't even catch that. Here we are on page like fourteen, and I'm already behind. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're fine. I... So yeah, so so we open with Bran, and Bran is going out like you said to see this execution, and they come and find the man. He's been captured. He's a deserter of the Night's Watch, mm -hmm. and we know that this is Garrod. So yes. yeah, take us from there. Yeah, uh, and basically, it's it's Bran. Bran watches this beheading. Uh, Ned Stark gets up on the on the dais or whatever it's called when you're going to kill somebody, and we are introduced to his his incredible enormous sword called Ice, and uh, mm -hmm. we're 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 meeting Lord Eddard Stark, this incredibly regal regal man. Uh, mm -hmm. and he, he... Even before we get to that, I'll just say that, you know, since we're talking so much about what they know and what they don't know, right before we get the introduction to ICE, there's a paragraph about how there are questions asked and answers given. Ned is trying to figure out why this guy deserted. He's trying to learn the underlying aspects of that. We're going to talk more about that next chapter. Uh, but Bran misses the entirety of that conversation. He's too young and he doesn't care about the back and forth. He's not really listening at all. I, and we have a very quick, a quick kill, if you will. The man's beheaded yeah. really quickly in this chapter, right? So for even for all this information that just got conveyed, Ned comes, 
beheading happens very quickly. A lot of that imagery I started noticing and making notes of every time it talked about blood, red, mm -hmm. and snow. Um, and so happening all, all throughout. The Yeah, I think we, we get an early note here that I'm just going to point out. I'm not going to talk much about it. Uh, but we get this language that the snows around the stump drank the blood eagerly, uh, which sounds kind of mystical. I mean, who knows if there's anything to that uh, in terms of what, what's going on. But that's certainly how Brand sees it, that the blood is drinking the snow. There's a lot of, I'll say too, and I was already talking about it, but uh, not only are there a lot of characters, but there's an interesting amount of character development as well. And I don't even mean that in the large sort of like, this character changed and went all these different ways. But all of the, you know, not every single name that creeps up, but the majority of people are starting to have a characterization even right after that moment. Out. Yeah, we yeah. have uh, Greyjoy is mentioned, you know, kind of kicking kicking the head callously. I was hoping have, you were going to mention that. Yeah, we have some reactions I was. to that what as an, well. What an asshole move. I mean, it's it's hard not to agree with John in this moment. You just watch this guy get get beheaded, and we're about to have this conversation between Rob and John about whether he died bravely and took a, took his punishment the way he was. And Theon Greyjoy is standing here kicking the head like a soccer ball. <laughs> well, <laughs> what you are know, you doing? It's interesting that you bring that up as well, because the so, something that struck me throughout this chapter and a little into the next chapter, which I know we'll talk about, you know, from Caitlin's point of view, but uh, something that struck me is these are people playing roles, and I don't mean that in a bad way or in a fictitious way, but, you know, oh, you're part of the Stark family, you have, you know, you will be a, uh, you know, you will be a leader, you know, in this area, you will be having responsibilities of politics. But there are others that are what I assume to be farmers or, you know, stable hands or whatever they might be. And they're just living their day to day lives. This is not, you know, nothing about the situation that we're looking at here. And in fact, especially as we get towards the end of the next chapter, you realize there's, there's not a lot of conflict necessarily happening in this area currently. So where we were introduced in the prologue to not only a threat, the others, uh, not only these sort of fears, but we were also introduced really right into a militant situation, which was the the Night's Watch. And now it's mm -hmm. kind of coming down and saying, oh, interesting, the, the, the concerns that we're starting to see on the Night's Watch, the, the real issues, have not reared their heads yet anywhere else. This is far away. These are people, you have people of all different types. They're not unified through violence or, you know, some sort of war type issue yet. Uh, right. <laughs> You know, but uh, but but I just thought that was interesting as well. So, you know, yeah, Greyjoy does seem a bit of an ass, but he also seems like a kid. Um, yeah. yeah, we get his age. He's 19. So he's a little older than the Starks that we have here, but he is. He's a kid and he's, right. he's being a dick. And like you said, he's playing a role. He's trying to just as Bran's trying to look cool in the face of this execution. So is he. I'll say we see more of this as well in the coming paragraphs as uh, they start riding home. And all of a sudden, there's these sort of interesting conversations about who was the man that died, you know, that he died bravely uh, and, and sort of died well. And then immediately, let's race. Let's race to the bridge. Let's uh, because yeah. that is that sort of there's a, there's a playfulness here. There, uh, the playfulness of children. You know, these are these are kids yeah. that are doing what doing what they do. Um, we're followed by a sort of a quick conversation between Bran and his father. And one of the things that really stood out to me there. Uh, which, which I liked a lot was his his father sort of drops his fatherly his his leader face and puts on his father face. Uh, yeah. 
you know, everybody the Lord's has. faith versus Father's faith. Yeah, exactly. And so I love I, that because that's something that comes up quite a, a bit over the course of the series in terms of how we look at this. And I love that it's the viewpoint of Bran. Bran is seven years old. I said last week, I like to think of him and all of the Stark kids is a little bit older, but nonetheless, it must be so confusing on a, on a fundamental level. I mean, I'm sure Bran gets why even at seven years old, but it must be so confusing to see his father embody these drastically different roles. And the role that Ned plays towards Bran and towards his siblings is so dramatically different from the role that he has to play as Lord, as somebody who is cutting a guy's head off, as somebody who is in charge of his household, in charge of soldiers, in charge of all of these things. And to be surrounded by that, you know, it's like, it's like when you're a kid and you get the, the uh, bring your child to work day and you go and you see yeah. your parent <laughs> operating at work for the first time. But, but work here is running the household that Bran grows up in. So he's been seeing it day one. So he has some understanding of what these things are, but I, I can't even imagine how disorienting it must be to see his father flip back and forth from warmth to serious business that, that abruptly. And it's interesting as well, because it's followed right in this conversation as Ned starts to play, and in, 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 again, in the best of ways, a very caring fatherly role saying, hey, let me help bridge this for you, Bran. Yeah. Let me help you understand. How are you doing? Yeah. yeah, and he starts bringing up, and I note that I took here, you know, talking about the older ways. You need to understand that we're doing this as part of something that's come down through generations. We have the blood of, what is they called, first man, uh, you know, yeah. first men coming through us. We are, we are an authentic family to our lineage, to the faiths that we've had, and this is why we do these things. And it, it's interesting just to see that, you know, I could see this as a the same conversation that a, a butcher today would have with their young child or, or anybody, you know, whatever the role might be. But it's right. There are these things that we do and we do it for family. We do it because this is the thing that are expected from us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I think the core teaching here, I have to highlight it because it's one of the most famous, one of the most famous lines of the series here. The conversation opens. Bran says, uh, John and Rob were debating whether he he died bravely. His father says, what do you think? Bran thought about it. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? And Ned hits him with, that is the only time a man can be brave. And I just love that moment. And, you know, we, we really pull on that from the last episode, uh, from the last, last chapter, where you have Waymar Royce standing up and having this badass moment after a full chapter of being an asshole. But that's what courage looks like is to be able to stand up and face your fears and act regardless and i think that that's such a nice theme to establish up front for these books that's funny because the line that i had underlined here was actually at the end of the conversation which is uh you know ned is continuing to explain to bran that you know he's going to grow up and he'll need to take on a lot of these responsibilities uh but he he, he goes on to stress a, a quote a ruler who hides behind paid executioners soon forgets what death is end quote yeah uh and I just think, again, like, like what a wonderful setup for whatever is about to happen here. You know, these, it's a wonderful political point, uh, but at the same time, you know, Lord knows de death has a, a wide breadth of, uh, of, you know, shapes that it can take. Uh, and we're already- Well, I hadn't even been thinking about this before, but we just read a chapter where death was walking and everyone's forgotten what death is. Nobody mm -hmm. believes that they exist anymore. Uh, and so what a, what a fascinating little remark on the nature of the world as it exists right now. The first men in the North are trying to cling hold to 
a memory of what death is, but it seems that even they've forgotten. Everybody has. But their conversation becomes interrupted. They get called away. Uh, Bran and Ned both hear the calls of the of the other children, of Rob and of uh, of Jon Snow, and saying, hey, come check this out. Look at what Rob has found. And uh, it, they, they come and ride up and they find a wolf, Rob told them. Uh, but it turns out it's not just a wolf. It is a dire wolf. There is concern. <laughs> there is concern, which I thought was interesting simply by the fact that it is their sigil. Uh, yeah. You know, when I heard it was their sigil and then I heard that they found it, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is their thing. Uh, they, they have hundreds of these direwolves, but no, it turns out this is a super rare type of mystical almost creature here here in their world. Uh, and so I want to I want to focus in on that unease for a moment. What did you think was going on there? We get some references here, but not really an explanation that everybody in the party, the adults in the party, Bran is picking up on this nervousness from them that they found this direwolf, this dead direwolf. And everybody, even his dad, kind of tightens up. What do you think's going on there? Well, I guess my first reaction was a simple one, which is, who knows what killed the the, the predator animal? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, is it still around? Are there concerns about what's going well, we, on here? We do know what killed it. We do. Uh, I have. We do know they that. they found an antler broken off in its throat. That's right. So it was taken down by some creature with antlers. We know that. Yeah, but other than that, I think that it was just, there seems to be a lot of attention paid towards symbols and like to signs, and that here's a death. I'll say, too, that the reaction, you know, and, and I wrote it down as a note here, you know, the mood falls ominous, you know, when they realize that it's a, uh, that it is an antler, and it's come in the next chapter where I realize what that antler might even be alluding towards and what that symbolism really might start to, to be, okay. be we'll pointing towards. I will say from like a like a literary criticism point of view, it's a little confused. You know what? It's uh, excited that they found it. There was a lot of hubbub around this dire wolf. And there's a yeah. lot of stuff that felt like foreshadowing, which is not a bad thing by any means. Uh, something that I wrote down here was uh, they're, they're looking at the pups. They found they were surprised to find living pups. And, uh, uh -huh. and just sort of a, a random man shouts out, you know, basically like, well, born with the dead is uh, worse luck. You know, it's bad luck enough to find them dead, born with the dead even worse. And uh, yeah. and and I started marking down things. I'm like, hmm, that feels like foreshadowing. I wonder what else is going to happen, like, like this sort of thing. But as the conversation continues to move forward, for me, it felt like the rest of the chapter was really just world building. Uh, these, mm -hmm. you know, Bran is caring and sensitive. He really wants to keep this pup. Jon Snow yeah. is admirable and is ready to kind of self-sacrifice to give up his opportunity for a pup so that the rest can have. There's a real, real, not overly done, but there's a real sort of looming and, and, and present sense of honor, where that honor goes and who needs to receive it based on position, based on social hierarchies and things like that. I wasn't sure why. Again, I didn't really understand why it mattered that Jon Snow found the extra one. They, they even stopped uh -huh. riding away. Jon Snow yeah. hears something. I thought maybe, oh. and again, not everything needs to be meaningful, but I thought maybe like this is going to speak to some extraordinary hearing ability Jon Snow has just in the future. Uh, glad so so I have a that. couple of different responses to that because I did want to ask you about that as well. Uh, but the, the first thing I would say, you know, from a metaphorical standpoint, it is both very notable that John makes the argument that convinces Ned to let the kids keep them, 
and then that John finds the additional one. So the first one, uh, I mean, you may have noticed this or may not, but I think we need to, to say it out loud. There are three boy pups and two girl pups. There are five Stark children. Like Stark children only yeah. if you don't count John. I am no Stark so, father, he says. Exactly. So, so this is huge because this is the beginning of something that we're going to see a lot of. This is not a spoiler, but there is significant prejudice in this world towards bastard children. Uh, it disrupts the lineage, the inheritances. This causes a lot of problems, and uh, we'll talk about the, the different ways that it has come up more concretely in the past. But just the presence of bastards throws a huge wrench into things. And I'm of the understanding that in medieval Europe, that was a real thing. Uh, and so from that perspective, the relationship that John has with Rob and that he seems to have with Ned and seems to have with Bran is a little abnormal in that he is very much so one of the kids. He's part of this family. He's welcomed and he's a part of it. And so for him to turn around and intentionally exclude himself from that conversation is a pretty significant sacrifice for a teenager to make in light of that. Uh, to some degree, no matter how welcomed he is, I'm sure he already feels somewhat like an outsider. And this is saying it out loud. It's voicing that concern. And I think it's that self-sacrifice more than anything that convinces Ned, okay, I can let the kids have them. And so when the sixth direwolf baby shows up and John now has one, but not just a regular one, one that's a little different, one that's the runt, one that's albino, that is a little separated off to the side. It's just a perfect little microcosm of the Stark kids. So I think it's that core character building that, that is the central piece of yeah. what's going on here. Yeah, I but get that. You I also, can't help but yeah. imagine that that Jon Snow has also, you know, been socialized into understanding his role, even if his father is, and exactly. I'm just repeating what I think I heard you say as well, but I got, really got this sense. I don't trust a young a young man in Jon Snow's position to just say, hey, I'm already, I'm, I'm 100% included in all of this, but I now I realize this as much as I'm sure right. he has gotten from plenty of people, you know you're not a Stark. Uh, right. And I don't even think that came from his family. dad, but yeah. Right, exactly. So I, I think that's crucial. But you did also pick up on something else that you know I wanted to talk about and I wanted to focus on. We have John riding away. He's crossing a bridge. And we know from earlier in the chapter that Bran got across the bridge and then had to get off his horse to walk over to it. So we're not close by. And he hears something and he says, can, can, can't you hear it? And the response is Bran could hear the wind in the trees, the clatter of the hooves on the ironwood planks, the whimpering of his hungry pup, but John was listening to something else. So do you think John has super hearing or heard a noise or is there something else going on here? And if so, what? You know, I, I, I had said super hearing earlier, but I guess I meant that a little more in jest. You know, for me, right. I think that there's a sensitivity that this man brings that others don't necessarily have inherent to them. I think that we saw it, you know, when John was calling Theon Greyjoy kind of an ass for kicking the, or, or was it Rob? Right. But it was part of that conversation. You know, what it means to die valiantly, what it means to to die bravely, what it means to rescue these pups and even self-sacrifice himself away from getting one. And now all of a sudden he's hearing this too. He's been the, even though this is a brand perspective chapter, even though this has shown Ned Stark, you know, Ned Lord Ned Eddard Stark, you know, doing this sort of like manly soldier, you know, execution style type thing. This has been a real Jon Snow chapter to me. Uh, this is a man who, or a young man who, you know, clearly has, emotion sensitivity and an understanding of position and how to use his position well in, in sort of a political yeah. politics of family. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, so did you have anything left on the plot in this chapter? 
No, no, because that's really where it sort of ends. It's, uh, you know, yeah. it really ends. Jon Snow hears the whimperings of a sixth direwolf, goes and finds this outcast runt of the litter albino, and decides that this one will be his. And uh, and the chapter kind of comes to a close there. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to tie in. We talked about most of the themes that I wanted to talk about already, because I think they really do translate very well from the prior chapter. Um, but really, this blurring of the lines between good and evil and between how things operate. So we once again get the old tales raising their head and some of it in description and memory. Bran talking about the things old man has told him about the wildlings, which may or may not be true and all of those discussions. But we also get them concretely that the dire wolf is back from legends here. This isn't something that they've seen south of the wall. It, it sounds like they believe that this is something that's real, but it's not something any of them have actually come across in their lifetime. This is something that's been north of the wall, generally speaking. And I, I think that that's a really helpful way to settle us into this gray world in this lack of understanding. And the direwolves are the perfect symbol for that. We have five at the end of the chapter, six babies, and they're described as babies. They can't even open their eyes yet. They're whimpering, they're warm, mm -hmm. they're nuzzling. All of the language surrounding them is so adorable. <laughs> These are really cute baby dogs. And at the same time, the dead mother, which is who these things are going to be eventually, is a monster. And it's not just called a monster by the people around it, but it is covered in maggots. It has these giant, mm. sharp, yellowy teeth. It has all of these things, and, and they're one and the same. These things go together. These adorable, loving, uh, presumably obedient creatures that are going to be one with the Starks that are kind of this emblem of who the Starks are, are going to grow up into these dangerous creatures. And that is emphasized over and over and over again through the chapter. It's why Theon wants to have, Theon and a couple of the other people around them want to have them executed up front. It's why Ned feels worried about it. It's why he says, you know, the servants are not going to help you with raising these. These are dangerous creatures. Uh, and so we don't have this core warm heart. We don't have the Shire where everything is good and perfect and everybody eats eight meals a day. Uh, they're existing in this real world where everything kind of crosses that line. And similarly, we just have this initial drawing of a contrast that is not necessarily different and not, you know, and they certainly get along, but this uh, a dualism, this direct conflict between John and Rob. Rob is the heir, John is the bastard. They're about the same age. And we just get these two paragraphs in the middle of the chapter that spell out, you know, Rob was X and John was Y. Rob was dark, uh, Rob was, was light coloring, red hair. John is dark, stark colors. Uh, Rob is graceful, John is strong. And they are just these different people. Uh, and at the same time, you can see them getting along in that way. So I think it works really perfectly like that. It's interesting too, as you talk about the pups and what they could grow into and the fear of the, de like the sort of monsters they'll become, you know, it, it, oftentimes imagery has, is a two-way street. You know, you have this leader and this, this sort of wonderful father figure of Ned Stark and his young children ready to grow up into these, into their roles, but they're still just young pups and who knows what they're, you know, and obviously I know from the TV show, just by the fact that there is a TV show in existence and seeing like, like, you know, commercials. Yeah. But Lord knows that the uh, the paths that that are set for all of these characters, I assume the pups as well, uh, are not yeah. necessarily where where things are about to go. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that ties into as well. I'm not going to belabor the points. We already talked about it. But Ned's father's face versus his Lord's face. 
we have this man who we can see firsthand is kind, is loving, is a father who is uh, there for his kids and is taking care of them. And at the same time, the centerpiece, the motif of the motif is the wrong word, but the central plot point of this chapter that everything is working around is an execution that he does himself. He chops off this guy's head. And not only does he chop off his head, he chops off his head for running away from what we know, now that you know that this was Garrett, that I pointed that out, that we know the man was running away from something very real and that he's fully within his rights to be dead afraid of. And that if Ned hadn't executed him, who knows where this story would be headed right now and who knows what information he would have been able to provide once he got past his trauma. Uh, and so it's, so it's interesting to see those two different sides there. Uh, from that perspective, I want to give you a little bit of the world building uh, aspects of things and hopefully put some of these names into context and help you sort things out. Uh, the primary thing that's going on in this chapter is we have our introduction to the Starks as a household. So obviously we've talked a lot uh, so far already about some of those characters. Lord Eddard Stark, or Ned as he's called, is the lord of the house. Rob is his oldest son and heir. John is his bastard son, about the same age as Rob, but we don't know anything else about where he came from. Uh, but because he's a bastard, his last name is Snow. It's not Stark. Bran, of course, is the point of view for this, is the next youngest boy. We heard a brief mention of the baby Rickon, who we can assume is younger than Bran. And then we know that because of the direwolves that there are two girls in the family as well, but we don't get their names or anything about them yet. And then the remainder of the household that's with them, uh, I think the most prominently mentioned one is Theon Greyjoy, who is a ward. He's older than Rob, and we don't know where he came from either, but he's also a part of this household. Uh, we can tell from his last name that he's also highborn, he's coming from nobility, but we don't really know how he ended up here with the Starks yet. Uh, and then in addition to that, three members of the household that have been mentioned, Jory Cassell comes up a number of times. He's the head of the house guard. And then Holland and Harwin, I think, were the only other named characters that I saw. Holland is the master of horse. He runs the stables. And Harwin is his son. So I think that covers what we have there. These, there are a bunch of people that we're going to get their names throughout this book and beyond. Uh, so it's just worth noting them up front. I don't have much more to add to that. Uh, but the Starks, just to focus in on them, are uh, the house in charge of the North as a region. So what we have going on here, we get a mention of, of Ned doing this execution in the name of King Rob. So there is a kingdom that is overarching that controls everything. We also got King Rob shouted out, I think, by uh, Waymar Royce last chapter. He, he said, like, for Robert or something along those lines. Uh, but King Robert is in charge of everything. And underneath him, there's kind of this uh, federal society that they have where there are these different kingdoms within the kingdom. They are colloquially referred to as the Seven Kingdoms because that's what existed at the time they were sort of unified, and we'll get more into that history later. Uh, but there are really nine regions that you're going to get referred to. So obviously we've been introduced to the North already, which the Starks run. And then within each, there's a head house that is the head of the whole region, and then there are lesser houses that report to them. So the North is the Starks. We also have, these haven't been mentioned yet, but I'm just mentioning them for you as we go forward. There's the Veil the Riverlands, the Westerlands, the Iron Islands, uh, which one of the reasons why there are nine, not seven, is because when they were originally uniformed, there was the kingdom of the Iron Islands and the rivers. So that's the Iron Islands and the Riverlands went together. Gotcha. There's the Crownlands, which were not originally their own kingdom. They're just the area around the capital. Uh, there's the Stormlands, the Reach, and there's Dorne. 
so like I said, each region other than the crown lands, which is, has the capital in it, that's where the king sits, has a house in charge. Those houses are vassals to the throne. They in turn have lesser houses that are their vassals. And then King Robert of House Baratheon, we got mentioned, he's the king in charge of everything, like we already said. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that in reading the sentence, Ned says, uh, King Robert of the House Baratheon first of his name, King of the First Men, the Andals, and the Roinar. So these are kind of like different ethnic groups that live in this area. The First Men are most prominently present in the North that used to exist across the entire continent, uh, but they were largely eradicated by the Andals when they got here. And then the Roinar are the Dornish, in effect. They were a different immigrant population. They largely settled in Dorn. So by virtue of unifying these groups, he has become king of the First Men, the Andals, and the Roinar. All of these groups have different traditions. They have different laws, different customs. So obviously that makes for a very complicated political system uh, and, and political framework that the king is stuck in trying to accommodate these very different views of the world and how they work. Yeah. And then the last thing that I'll mention uh, is we just get a description of ice, Ned's sword. And it's mentioned that that is Valyrian steel. We're going to talk about that a little later because Valyria comes up another couple of times over the course of these chapters. Uh, but this is effectively a magical weapon. It's very expensive, very rare, as it is mentioned here. This has been in Ned's family and the Stark family for hundreds, if not thousands of years at this point. Any questions? Two. Yeah. Chapter two, Catelyn one. Not Caitlin? Uh, the show said Catelyn, and she often gets referred to as Cat. Uh, so that might get confusing to you, but if you want to call it Caitlin, go for it. This is your world. Either way. Uh, well, chapter two follows closely on the heels of chapter one. Uh, we have gone from the ride home from the execution to now being at home. In fact, actually outside of the home in, what does it refer to? The Ghostwoods, I think? The Godswood. The so God's just to clarify that, this isn't super important, but the Godswood is described as, as Winterfell was built around it. So this is inside the castle. It's huge. It's described as multiple acres worth of forest, dense forest, but it is inside the castle walls and it is in fact walled off on its own as well. And that's where they are. But Catelyn yeah. has, has come here to come join her, her, her husband, who we've met in the previous chapter, Ned Stark. Uh, Ned is out here cleaning his sword, and this seems to also really be a place of, uh, I want to call it peace, but I, th I think there's there's a connection, and it's weird to use the phrases here, but a connection to old traditions, old faiths, a place of, uh, of healing and sort of centering is what it seems like. We learn a lot in the beginning of this chapter and throughout it of, uh, of the different faiths. We learn it from Catelyn's point of view, where what she was brought up with and the ways that she was brought up with seem very stark, stark as it becomes a clear word throughout this, uh, but is, is a stark contrast to what her husband and her, her now family participates in. She does acknowledge that even though they are not religious per se, uh, they do have a connection to First Met. They do have a connection to, you know, sort of an older lineage that while her religion may, or religious practices and beliefs may be a little stronger than theirs, they do have the blood of this sort of older generation of, of, of faith kind of pulsing through them. Um, this chapter is really, really quick and succinct, I think, although it definitely covers plenty of information. Uh, but mm -hmm. the chapter itself, in terms of a story, uh, Catelyn comes out to, to speak with her husband, and she does it 
in a sort of very smart way. She seems to really understand her husband. The end of the chapter, or the chapter rather, ends with Catelyn delivering uh, two sets of news. Uh, the end of the chapter is what she went out there, it seems, to do to begin with, which is to say, uh, oh, and I'm already forgetting his name, but uh, she comes to convey that that's, that's uh, John Aaron. John Aaron is dead. That's what I have underlined here in my book. Uh, Bummer for that guy. Yeah, and if I understood it correctly, John Aaron seems to have been basically the father figure, like a parental role to Ned Stark. And in fact, we actually through this, I mean, it's funny because the chapter is not very long, but it's really in the very final pages here that we learn a ton of information. We find out that mm -hmm. Ned Stark and the current king, Robert Baratheon, really seem to have grown up together. We come to really understand that, who, that you know, while we don't dive into who John Aaron really is in any depth, we understand a lot about Ned's history, his relationship to Robert Baratheon, how this sort of, there were, were steps taken to become in control of the throne and how they ended up in the positions that they're in today. Uh, we learn about their relationship with one another. And then through the conversation that he has with Catelyn, we also come to learn about the relationship that Ned Stark has with the Lannisters, uh, Robert Baratheon's wife and the family of his wife. Uh, clearly a little bit of differences. Uh, we find that, and this is the second thing that Catelyn brings up, uh, as Ned says, you know, you should go and comfort, I think it's her own sister, uh, who was married to John Aaron. Lysa. Uh, yeah, Lysa. Uh, but go comfort her and go spend time and take some of the kids and bring life into their home as they're dealing with this death. And she says, if only I could. Uh, because, in fact, it's uh, Robert Baratheon, your best friend and king and lord, is actually on his way right now to come visit us. Uh, it's not clear why Robert Baratheon is coming. However, it is... Oh, we'll get to that. I'm asking you. Don't worry. Okay. You be ready. Uh, it is mentioned, or if not, it's not directly pointed out in this, but I will go back to the previous chapter. Uh, all of a sudden, a little bit of the imagery between the antler and the direwolf becomes a little bit more present. And I can't help, I don't think it was mentioned, but I can't help but think that the sigil of the king may be a type of deer or something with an antler. Uh, what a prediction, putting yeah. it on the sheet. That's right. So so that's that's my assumption. And it really is. And again, I know we talked about this last time. Obviously, I've watched the TV show. I have an idea of which way these things are going. But I will say that I ended the last chapter really saying, wow, there was a real reaction to this antler in the throat. And then in this chapter, Catelyn saying, you know, I, as somebody of faith, I have I heard about it in signs <laughs> and I heard about this and this is a real bother. And then I think at the very I'm end, scared. Yeah. And I think she really stresses it at the end. She says, given signs that I've been seeing, you know, this is my words, but given signs that I've been seeing, I'm really nervous about Robert coming up here to our, to our area. I wanted to add though, as well, you know, while this chapter seemed to really have a lot of its weight left at the end of it, uh, you know, here are these two big notes for Ned Stark to be aware of. There's a lot of, you know, continued world building in a really nice pacing uh, from the beginning of this. We learned a lot about Cat Catelyn and where she's from. I've really enjoyed, even though we're only a very little ways in this story, how we've gone from frozen to cold to now Catelyn, who's now talking about warmer areas and where she's been, and in fact, leading us through almost our own thawing as a reader. We're coming out of these frozen areas into places that are a lot more comfortable slowly and slowly. And uh, and that was really You know, interesting. it's interesting you say that. Yeah. Because I, I, I had written down here that my themes on, on this chapter, almost the opposite from mm -hmm. that perspective. 
because she's talking a lot about warmer areas. And I don't disagree with you on that. But I think as compared to last episode where we got the, the references to the cold, but it wasn't sparking anything in the way that it was in the prologue. It didn't have a reaction from Brandon or from Ned because these people are from the North. They're from the cold. And throughout this entire chapter, we go back to that feeling of apprehension, feeling something watching, feeling something dark in the, in the leaves and in the branches of the trees and the godswood. She is so unnerved this whole time by being here. And she says it up front. It's not hers. It's his. And no matter how long she lives there, she is of the South. This is not her world. And she's so uncomfortable with it. And I think it really just puts for me such a, it's not to say that what you were saying was wrong. I think mm -hmm. it's hundred percent right, but it, it puts such a punctuation on this idea that we are somewhere in this liminal space between the old world and the new. The North operates in this new world. People are thinking about things in the new ways. They are marrying into the Southern families, but everything about it, there is something in the air that is just watching you. And if you don't fit in, you'll know it. I like that they, uh, they, they talk about the tree that has the face carved into it, the sort of watching yeah. tree. And uh, Catelyn constantly feels like it's staring at her all of the time. Uh, so I definitely that, agree with you about the discomfort that that's the happening. imagery of the tree is incredibly uncomfortable too. We get this, you know, from the outset, we get told that this is where Ned is most comfortable. And it's, it's very clear from the way he acts and the way he thinks that he is, but this is a religious place and the religious place is focused around the heart tree and the heart tree is a face carved into white bark, which is dried red sap. Like, there's no bloodier imagery than that. Even the literal blood we got in the previous chapters, blood on snow, it is the red face carved into the white bark. And that's just such a fascinating little little pinprick to me in mm -hmm. terms of how that's put out. These are not your safe and comfortable and cuddly gods. There's no, I mean, she talks about what the face of the seven is that she was brought up in. It's all incense and rainbows and and warm happy faces and this is these are not those gods i will add though like we're only 20-ish pages into this book there is some heavy-handed focus on red and white uh you know and it, it's not lost on me uh whether it's from the beheading and like you were just talking about a moment ago about the snow drinking in the man's blood and or we're talking we're looking well, at the, the dire wolf and the blood on the snow here we have even when, the leaves are are red on the white trees yeah. and you know i gotta interrupt of, you here though yeah where where else did we see white and red or a red face on white did I you pick up the, on this was, it was the face of the the others was it was it no they were just blue no no i don't know it's john snow's albino direwolf mm. white fur red eyes what else is new? I feel like the only colors they can see are white and red at this point. Like it's a very monochrome. Well, you're, you're not wrong, but I'm just saying, like, like that that is is definitely drawn through that theme. That that color mm -hmm. motif is very present uh, throughout these chapters, and so it's just worth noting that one other instance of it that we've seen so far. You know, I'll say going back to the chapter though, and, and a little more specifically, we do have Catelyn bringing up the names of her other children. So now we know that the two daughters, Arya and Sansa. Uh, there's a little bit of the continued, you know, conversations of what I assume to be nobility, right? Uh, this stood out for me is, you know, you know, the little, the, the baby Rickon, who is only three, is definitely a little afraid of this wolf uh, that's been given mm -hmm. to him. 
to which Ned Stark says what I assume will be words that we hear all the time, winter is coming. Uh, he needs yep. to man up. Like, like times are going to get tough. He, like, he won't be three forever. I will also add, and, and I'm not going to fixate on every moment that there's a mention of other other names or places. It was cool to see Valeria came up. We've heard about Valerian Steel, but I'm going to kind of yep. pass over that. But I will say um, da, 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 it's Ned himself as he's talking about the man that he executed, saying that he's talked with Ben, who seems to be a leader at the Night's Watch, and that Ben is talking mm -hmm. about there's a, there's a discomfort, a discomfortude. I don't know if that's a word. Also, uh, just to mention, I'm, I'm sure you picked up on this, but Ben mm -hmm. is his brother. That's so right. There's a family connection there as well. That's right. I, uh, but it, yeah, and it goes on to say, so, so it, it's, I, I actually, I really wanted to read this, you know, so, so Ned's, Ned's talking to Catelyn, and he says, you know, Ben, ben writes, the strength of the Night's Watch is down below a thousand. It's not only desertions, they are losing men on rangings as well. Is it the wildlings? She asked. Who else? And we already know who else. Uh, it's, oh, it's, yeah. You know, and this was part of my frustration I was talking about at the beginning. You want to shake the just a little bit. Hey, you are going through motions you've been through a thousand times, only this is the one time that it's not going to fit here. Lord knows the red and white imagery that we're having with the antler in the throat of the direwolf. What, you know, these assumptions that are being made, these sort of like, oh no, that's just, you know, business as usual. Not so much. Like, please pay yeah. attention to these things. Um, da, 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 I'm looking more in my notes here. We also get interested. Uh, there's a lot of world building that happens here. We learn about the Mad King. We learn about the the you know like like a little bit about these other cultures that are out there as well. Um, and so it's it's. I, don't, I I was thinking about how to even try to say this in conversation with you, Dan. Is you know when in the act of reading a book, you go page by page. There's you can't you know you can't go random page to a different random page. It won't make any sense. But there's always, especially and we're so early in this book. There's always a question to any book, which is just how broad is this book about to go? Just how far right. am I expecting this to happen? Now we've already been up north past the wall. We know there's a community and a world up there. We're now down below the wall, but we're in the north, and we know that there's Ned in you know Ned Stark and his area here in the north. And we're about to go to a different world entirely next chapter yes we will but even before getting there we have a huge depth of information of people in this world up here in the north we've met the father we've met the mother we've met this we're meeting and being introduced to the seven children we're meeting the party around them we're meeting old man we're meeting okay there's a whole world here of humans a, a, like a real population yeah. now we're also learning about the lannisters now we're also learning about and the fact is is that like wow like this it, it's not lost on me just how many details are about to, yeah. to continue pouring out. Uh, and yeah. just from a, well, from let me let me give side. you a little more. Yeah, let me let me give you some uh, foundation, some firm ground to stand on here, because we do get a bit of an information dump through Catelyn's thoughts here, and specifically on the the recent political history of this world. Uh, so you already mentioned this. Uh, offhand, but we get the news that John Aaron is dead, and then Catelyn jumps into this, in her mind, into this history of what's going on here. So Ned, when he was younger, he and Robert Baratheon went and uh, were fostered by, they were wards with the um, childless Lord Aaron, it says here. And at some point while they were there, we have no idea why, 
But the Mad King Aerith II Targaryen, uh, as he's called the Mad King here, demanded their heads. And instead of handing them over to the king's justice, uh, John Aaron called his banners and, and launched a rebellion, in effect. And then just a moment later, we get the reference of another house that was involved in that, the Lannisters. Uh, and it said that they came to the cause late when it was clear that Robert was going to win already. And that that seems to be the source of the animosity between Ned and the Lannisters. Uh, so that's a little bit of background there, that, that King Robert, first of his name, uh, is also the first of his dynasty. That the Targaryen kings that had gone before him, the Mad King, uh, was unseated by rebellion, is what it seems to be going on here. Mm. Um, so I, I, hopefully that helps tie it together a little bit there. Yeah, no, and it's, I'll be honest, there's a lot of names to try to track and keep track of and trying to understand which ones matter more than others at this point, as early as we are, is mm -hmm. still definitely difficult. So trying to keep track of all of that's interesting. Um, it's I, also mentioned yeah. here, I, I should add, that at some point during the war, uh, Ned and John Aaron were married to sisters in a ceremony that happened together. Uh, so this was not something that predated these relationships didn't exist beforehand, uh, but they were done together. Lysa married John Aaron, and we realized eventually, I guess, had a kid. This is John Aaron's first kid, uh, and that cat married Ned and, of course, had the five children that they've had together. Right. Well, good. Well, I'm excited to move right into the next chapter. Are you more? Yeah. So here? before we get there, I, I want to talk about a couple of other things, and I also want to get you on the record of some stuff before we, we really switch narratives uh at this point going across the sea to danny uh so we already talked about most of the world building stuff you picked up on a lot of what was going on there uh just want to pick up from the discussion we had with last chapter in terms of the different kingdoms we get a couple of the others that i mentioned uh said again there's the Vale and there's the riverlands the Vale has as its chief house the Aarons, so that's john Aarons, and their castle the erie is mentioned uh, and then similarly, Tully, which is Catelyn's house, is the chief house of the Riverlands, and their castle is River Run. Uh, so you kind of see this repeated, the connection of the names there, Winterfell in the north, River Run in the Riverlands, uh, right. and those types right. of things, and, and the veil will get clearer as we go. Uh, just a couple of other names that I want you to pay attention to, or names or, or references. We get some references here, and we actually get some of them repeated next chapter. Uh, but there, we, there are first mentions of the Children of the Forest, uh, a place called the Isle of Faces, and the green men that live there. We're not going to get in depth on those. Just uh, note that they came up already. We'll, we'll come back to those later. And then similarly, we get our first references to maesters, which is actually really important in terms of the themes that we've been talking about before. The maesters are really the central uh, institution of learning in Westeros. So they are the university. Uh, in effect, they produce these doctor, professor, scholars uh, that go and advise the lords. So Ned Maester is a guy named Maester Lewin. He gets referenced, and he actually specifically comes up in line with the themes where Catelyn talks about being worried about what's going on north of the wall and, and all the stories she's heard about the things that are there. And he says, Maester Lewin will tell you the others never even existed. This isn't something we need to worry about. So this is really the core contrast between the men of science versus what we've already seen is happening, the, the myth, the legend coming back to life and the magical. Mm. And then along the same vein, we get a mention of Maester Pycelle, who is the Grand Maester. He's the head of the Maesters. 
and he is effectively King Robert's maester. So he's part of the king's court in King's Landing. Gotcha. Uh, so I want to I want to get you on the record with some things about where this storyline is headed. Uh, is these are the types of things I want you you know pay attention to what I'm asking. You'll learn pretty quickly about the things I'm going to follow up on. <laughs> uh, but whenever we get mentions of things that are a little out of the ordinary or a little weird, and then whenever we get things that are obvious foreshadowing, I want to hear what you have to say about them. So the first one in terms of what's out of the ordinary, Catelyn has a whole thought process about the Stark words. Now, every house has words, and they're usually, look at me, I've got a really big dick, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Starks, by contrast, say winter is coming, which is this very dire warning of things are going to get real, you got to toughen up, and you got to man up real soon. Uh, and uh, uh, it specifically comes up in that context with Rickon. Uh, so I wanted to see if maybe you had any thoughts on that. Winter is coming. We talked last time about the the abnormal or... or uh, oblong seasons that go on in this world. Obviously, winter can be a very significant event if it's not just happening for three, four months, happening for years at a time. But it seems that the Starks are really focused on this. We have winters coming. We have the castle called Winterfell. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Anything you want to put out into the universe before we keep moving here? I don't necessarily. I think that there's a lot of like strong imagery in it, right? Like winter is not the most pleasant of thing when it's announced to be coming. Winter has a lot of you know, like, like people have to get ready for winter. There's not growth. There's not life. There's a lot of sort of like endings that happen in winter. Uh, yeah. You know, I I will say as an aside, winter is coming as a as a slogan, if you will. And I say this from like the author side, like awesome. Like what an yeah, awesome. Yeah, badass, right? Like, like, like. I'll tell you now, I, I don't know if she mentioned it in her list of things. And this isn't really a significant spoil, spoiler, but one of the houses from the South, their sigil is flowers. And their words are growing strong, and it's the lamest shit in the world. Yeah, uh, like really, like how have you guys not been murdered by people rebelling against you with that by now? Yeah, it's just for insane. you know your 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 <laughs> ego's sake. A lot um, of a lot of street cred in winter is coming. But I'll say you, you know, I, and and I don't know if this is a good thought process to where where it sounds like your questions are coming from or going, but you know there is. And I know we talked about this last episode, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge fantasy person to begin with. And sometimes I find that, that, you know, similar to what I'm finding here and not in any terrible way, but just, you know, my own thought process, there's a lot of really heavy handed imagery. The snow is here, the winter's yeah. coming, things are moving, things are changing. Uh, not in a good way. Uh, the stags, you know, antler in the throat of the dire wolf, like, like, in a sense, I, I I found myself less fixated on Catelyn's reaction to winter is coming. And, and more of that is just one thread in this fabric of doom, <laughs> like, like ominous, ominous doom. Um, yeah. I really loved, and speaking about the tone of this chapter, there was a really interesting and well-written balance uh, around Catelyn. She is clearly someone who is her own independent thinker. She has her disagreements and her discrepancies in thought around what she's seeing her her husband and and what their family needs to do and what her husband's family presumably, you know, like, like the traditions that are coming here. Uh, with that said, she knows that she needs to walk tenderly. She's not starting the conversation with what she her. In fact, I don't think she brings up her concerns almost at all. Definitely not directly. Mm -hmm about the, you know, not explicitly about what she's afraid might happen or what's going on. She is 
in a sense, that sort of, you know, very stereotypical old school honorable wife. She is meeting her husband where her husband needs or demands to be met. And I was really impressed at, as a reader, you know, just to be able to get that sense of unease, you know, through her character and then watch her restraint about what it means to share that yeah. and to show that. It's a very lived in relationship, which I think mm. is really wonderful. We get we get dropped in to what you can feel is a marriage that has existed for years. Uh, I mean, I think we get a mention that it's somewhere around 15 years ago that they got married mm -hmm. uh, and that this is a relationship that has really built itself over time and that is built strongly. And you see that through their interactions in the same way as you see the fatherly instinct come out in Ned's interactions with Bran in the prior chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that that's a really strong, you know, you talk about the uh, what what's the first step of the hero's journey? The uh, but we're we're looking right now at this this part of the world that is the Shire. It's the happiness and the, and the stable area, and that core of it is uh, the safety, the feeling of warmth of it. All comes out of these family relationships. It does beg the question, though. A bastard son usually means extramarital energies yes it does uh you know and i guess i hadn't been thinking about that much before but as as you're talking about this lived-in relationship i am curious i am curious if yeah. when that might have happened and how much drama it might have caused uh so i'm curious yeah. where and if that'll happen we'll come back to that later so a couple of other questions before we move past this one we, mm -hmm. we get two instances of uh kind of foreshadowing or uh, less foreshadowing as much as remarks about where things might head. So I just want to hear your thoughts on them. The first one, uh, Ned talks about how there's conflict past the wall that is costing the Night's Watch people. They don't have as many men as they usually have. They're down below a thousand. They're losing men on rangings, specifically because of Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall. And we've heard that name before. We heard it in the prologue. Uh, and he says, I may have to go north at some point and go fight him. Do you think that's going to happen? Is Ned going north to fight them? Is Mance Raider coming south? Are we going to meet him? Are we going to get to see that conflict? Where do you think we're headed there? You know, again, as a reader, like, like, and I, and I say as a reader because I don't think it's, like, clear to the characters right now, but I think it's being made clear to me that I, there seems to be a lot of, um, pardon me as I forget the word, but basically a lot of uh, sort of, like, tricky uh, uh, misplacement of attention. You know, uh, here's, you know, everybody's going through the motions as they should and as they as they are, you know, are, are sort of required to do. But as a reader, even just from the prologue, I know Nance is not the problem, even though I haven't like gone further into this. Maybe he's been a problem right. before, maybe this or not, but th there is a different problem. And so when I hear that, you know, Ned's brother, Ben, is saying that, you know, they're, they're dwindling in numbers. And I hear Ned saying, well, maybe I, we might have to build an army and, and go fight off this, what I assume is the, is the you know, is, is, the, is the reason for this drop in numbers. That makes sense to me for his character. But as a reader, right. I'm not concerned about think, Nance at all. Do you think Mance Raider knows about the others? Do you think that that's something that's like, like general knowledge in the North at this point? I, you know, again, because there hasn't been a lot of introduction to Mance. To be right? clear, I mean, I mean, north of the wall, not yeah, the north yeah. as the region. Yeah. No, 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 I got that. But but without a little more perspective and, and depth, you know, into meeting Mance, again, as a reader, without really learning about him from any other perspective, he's, 
just as fantastical to me as a reader as a dire wolf might be to the characters here. So right. I, I don't have many conceptions of, about this character, the, the Mance Raider Rainer character, by any means at this point, because there's so much going on. There seems to be the others, these these white walkers from above the wall that are now starting to make moves after not being around, even the dire wolves, like you had mentioned right. just a moment ago. There's there are some things that are known to be dreams and nightmares that now seem to be coming alive. You now are watching the I'm now watching these characters react the way that they should react to a situation, you know, react the way they should react to normal situations, except it's an abnormal situation. So, you know, I yeah, maybe there's a chance that Ned Stark will rally an army together and mm -hmm. go north of the wall, but I assume that would be a way for him to have to face the actual issue much more yeah. than he's going to have some huge issue with Mantra. All right. Uh, the, the second one of these two is uh, maybe a little less significant because we pretty quickly mm -hmm. get redirected from it, but we get the conversation about Kat and the kids going to see her sister. Uh, do you think that's coming anytime soon? Or, or is this interruption of the king uh, going to make that an impossibility? Honestly, I, I like to both of these questions, I think that the the foreshadowing and the the illusions toward I think there's a lot of clarity about what's going to happen. What's supposed to be a nice like what Ned is seeming really excited towards a nice family visit from his pseudo brother, you know, his his great friend Rob is coming. All the signs are pointing in the opposite direction right now. We've got blood on the snow. We've so you got, think this is going to be bad? Yes, Robert coming. Okay. You don't think this is like uh, old friends meeting each other and, and you know, getting back I, to where they were? The sense that I have, the, the, the feeling that I'm getting from these chapters so far is that I'm expecting a conversation that would be something like, hey, Ned, I'm Rob the King. We're such great friends and we've had such a history. Unfortunately, I need you to give up. Like, I, I need to conscript half of your men. I've got okay. bad news. I've got something that's going to now break the system a little bit because things are changing. So I think up. you're giving that as an example, but this this was actually my next question. Mm -hmm. What do you think the king is coming north for? Is this I miss my friend? We just lost our father figure, and I want to I want to come and mourn with you, or is there something more at play? Yeah, I didn't get the sense from from the way that I was reading it that this was in any way connected to John Aaron uh, and the death of John Aaron. I you think no. Yeah, I think that this was much more okay. meant to be like a friendly, jovial visit. I think especially because of the size of the party that's coming with Rob. And I understand that as the king, the realm is more political. Yeah, but that it's it's, you know, I think that it's the sense that I'm getting is that this is a visit with intention made to look like a friendly visit. Uh, you know, the king is coming. It's going to be a great time, except it's been, I forget, but I, I think it's been years since they've last seen each other. Like, this is yeah. not, hey, it's the weekend, let's hang out. Uh, this is this is an event, and I, I right. am just getting the sense that it's going to be around something negative. Uh, but again, okay. negative in the sense of politics. I, I, like, like, I really do think right. that it's going to be Robert saying, hey, buddy, I know we've had, like, good political relations for the last while, but something needs to change now. That, that That's the sense that I'm Got it. And then that's actually a really helpful transition to my last question, uh, which I'm just going to need to do this uh, probably fairly often over the course of the series. But John Aaron died off screen. We did not see this death. Mm -hmm. We get told he, he fell sick and uh, the fever burned through him. And he had Grandmaster Pycelle there to ease the pain and make it go quickly. You buy that story? I have no reason not to at this point. 
you know what, there's not right. enough espionage like occurring for, there's not even hints towards it. In my experience so far, we have, you even referred to it as a kingdom, right? But like a, like a, like a state ship in the north run by Ned Stark. Uh -huh. There is a aggressor past the north of the wall that Ned is aware of, that's Mance Rayner and the wildlings. There's more to it than what, what we know, but I have no sense of political intrigue I have no reason to right. think that there's there's foul play. So you're 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 being very uh, uh, careful in how you phrase this. Whether or not you have any indication from the books, what are what are you thinking? Yeah, I think that that I, I'd stay true to what I said. I think that, in all, all right. honesty, I think for me, I'm I'm still waiting for the inciting incident. I have yeah. no idea which way that inciting incident is going to go. So right. it, it could come from the could north. Could be Garrod. Yeah. It, could yeah. be the execution of Garrod easily, yeah. It's not that exciting of an inciting well, he, he's incident. now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But but, but <laughs> I, 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 I will say it really, I mean, I think we're almost 30 pages in right now to the book as we start this next yeah. chapter. And the fact is, is everything has really felt, including the prologue, like a stage is being set. I'm watching yeah, these pieces absolutely. fall into place on stage, mm -hmm. but I don't know which way the actors will push them, nor do I know which way the wind will push them as well. But right. things are not stable. So we're still in the lead up. Yeah, we're still mm -hmm. in the flat portion Cautious. of the, the plot arc from middle exactly. school. Yeah. So one yeah. last thing on this chapter, this isn't even a question. It's just a little fun note. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this right away, but Ned was fostered as a boy with John Aaron. Uh, alongside his close friend, Robert Baratheon, and Ned's two oldest children, Rob and John. Ah, I didn't catch it with John. Rob, I was bummed about because I was like, how am I going to keep these characters straight? But uh, no, it, it, it's Rob and Robert, they don't really call the king Rob at all, so that'll yeah. be easy. But he, he named his first two kids after his, his father figure and his best friend. I think that's kind of adorable. You know, or it's just like really, like he's really into his own story. <laughs> you know? All right, Danny won. Let's Daenerys, go. Let's so so with the start of the next chapter, things have now shifted radically. We are. Yeah. Do you mm -hmm. want me to set the stage here so we can reorient ourselves, or do you want to jump into it yourself and we'll do that later? I think yeah, I think that would be helpful if you would do that. Okay, so we have switched locations, plot, everything entirely. We have moved to Daenerys one. Daenerys' first chapter, I'm going to call her Danny throughout this because she gets called that in the chapter two. Danny's first chapter takes place in a city called Pentos. So I mentioned last week that you can kind of roughly imagine uh, the continent of Westeros as the British Isles, if you squint your eyes. Uh, so Danny is on the continent, if that is the correct way of thinking about it. Okay. This is uh, across the English Channel. We are now operating in Europe proper. Uh, and this is where the analogy completely breaks down and doesn't really operate at all if you look at a map of this. Uh, but Pentos is a place that is one of the nine free cities is what they're called. And we get some references to some of the others in here and also to that name. I'm just going to list them off here. You can feel free to forget about them immediately. Okay. Uh, but because we've already gotten some of them mentioned, I'm just going to say them. Alongside Pentos, they are Bravos, Lorath, Norvos, Cahor, Mir, Tyros, Lys, and Volantis. And these are city-states in the, the conception of 
Renaissance Italy. Uh, these are individual cities that have these names. They have captured some territory around them. They are always fighting with each other over the scope of that territory. There is certain, certainly plenty of territory in the area that they're in that is not aligned with any of them or not under any of their controls. Pentos itself is a city that was originally founded by merchants. So it is very much so a trade-oriented economy, trade-oriented city, and it is run by merchants, uh, this group of men called the Magisters, who we get one of those in here. The Magisters form a council that is effectively the ruling committee of Pentos. They pick a first prince uh, on a regular basis, but whenever they don't like him, they execute him. So the Magisters are really the ruling uh, group, the oligarchy that runs things. So you can see how trade uh, and riches really suffuses everything about the politics of this area. Danny herself, uh, we get brought to, is a Targaryen. So this mm -hmm. is the last remnants of the dynasty that King Robert supplanted. Danny is here with her older brother, Viserys. Viserys is now the heir of that. We get a reference to their older brother, Rhaegar, in here. So Danny and Viserys are the two younger children of the Mad King Aerys, who fled during the rebellion, made it to Essos. It's Essos and Westeros. It's the Western continent and the Eastern continent. There is also a Sothorios so so or something like that, which is the Southern one. Spoiler. Uh, but <laughs> regardless, uh, they fled across the Narrow Sea and went to Essos, where they have been ever since, and they've spent the last six months in the home of one of the magisters of Pentos, a guy named Illyrio. So with that background, I will hand it over to you. Well, the, what's funny is, is with this chapter, for a large portion of the first half of the chapter, that's exactly what it's about, right? There is a ton of world building that happens here, uh, which I thank you very much for, for putting a little bit into some type of shape, because Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm so I, I just think reading words for this first point. half of the chapter, and then I think we can largely skip past this, but I mm -hmm. do want to give a little more of the details that are provided about Danny's childhood. Mm -hmm. So it starts with the description that they fled King's Landing. Viserys was eight years old, but Danny was literally just conceived. She was a fetus uh, at its very early stages. Uh, so her mom fled to a place called Dragonstone. Dragonstone is an island in the Narrow Sea, but it's very close to Westeros. It's effectively in the mouth of the bay where King's Landing is. And this is the historic seat of the Targaryens, other than, you know, being the ruling the family. Rulers, yeah. So you can think of Dragonstone as like the Prince of Wales spot. This is where right. the royal family has its home away from the capital. So they went there, stayed there for a little while until the war was really, truly lost at which point the usurper's brother uh, set sail with some ships. They realized that everything was screwed. Uh, well, actually, before we even get to that, Danny was born on Dragonstone during a raging storm, and her mother died in childbirth. Uh, before the usurper's brother could get there, a guy named Sir Willem Derry saved her and Viserys, so clearly still loyal to the now dead king, presumably. He got the two of them out of there and went to Bravos, which is, as I just mentioned, one of those three cities. They lived there for several years. This is where we get Danny's first memories. So we have to assume they were there long enough for her to, to reach an age mm -hmm. where she can have these images of the house with the red door, et cetera, et cetera. While there, Sir Willem Derry got sick and died. And at some point after that, they ran out of money and got kicked out of wherever they were, at which point her and Viserys 
kind of traveled between all of the three cities. We get this quote from Bravos to Mir, from Mir to Tyrosh, and on to Cohoran, Volantis, and Lys. So in that brief mention, plus Pentos, we get uh, three, six, we get seven of the nine free cities. So they've been all over the place. Viserys is worried about them getting assassinated by King Robert, uh, but they don't have anything. Viserys gets called the beggar king. They had to sell their mother's crown, the few treasures they had left. They're very poor and effectively reliant on the charity of other rich, important houses who decide to bring them in because of their name. I'll say that this was a very interesting time to start to, and I think this was done in a very straightforward way, but start to see the the cracks or the freakouts of someone who has lost power and can't handle it. Uh, yeah. You know, Viserys, there's a constant uh, uh, cadence of conversation where Viserys, Daenerys's brother, uh, is is talking about the value of their family. That it, and, and this is even fed back to him from those that are taking care of them. Yes, there are still people that toast to you in the dark of night. You know, when no, when when you know, awful King Robert and his henchmen can't hear them. Uh, but a lot of this seems like word, like lip service to Viserys, and not very authentic. Danny even goes out of her way to say, you know, I, you know, as as Viserys says, we move so much because there are bounties on our heads, and and there's a knife after us everywhere we go. And she says, yeah, but I haven't I haven't seen that anywhere. I haven't really felt that at all. There's a lot of language used around Viserys uh, that speaks to his, um, what's the right way to say this? Uh, his Anxiety? unqualifications like, yeah like oh like, yeah you know he, he you know he has a hand on the hilt of a sword that he's never drawn i think or, or he never used in any he, Lord and that he borrowed from illyria exactly. yeah crucially it's not even his sword uh he clearly has what i'm going to call delusions of grandeur you know this sort of sense of you know here's where we are but it's also a weird violent delusion and not just of taking back the crown but how how what he's willing to do to get that victory, even though it's way outside, he thinks it might be helpful. But we learn that their the the their sort of operation right now is for Daenerys to be married off to Cal Drogo, to this sort yeah. of like like wild band of men. And Viserys goes so far as to say, because at, at some point when when Danny comes in and finally lays eyes on on Cal Drogo and realizes his sort of like brutish look and how large he is and and how intimidating, he says, "I don't want to do this." And her brother says, "I will. I would. I would. I would give you away, not just to this man, but his whole horde, if I needed to get to, in order to get the army yeah. that I want. This is what I would do to get here." I'll say at the same time, while there's a lot learned about Viserys and his perhaps. Uh, weirdly skewed and rose-colored glasses about what might happen for him. Uh, Daenerys is very reserved. There's not a yeah. lot necessarily learned about Daenerys. She is super young, but she's clearly yeah. taking her time to understand her surroundings. She's constantly observant to the situations around her and what's going on. She's always paying attention to what she's understanding, what she's hearing from others, and what seems to be spoken between the lines. So I'm, I'm very excited so to... Would live with Daenerys a little bit as we go forward. Yeah. I, I would jump in here to say that I had exactly that in my notes, that this is, despite being in the POV of Danny, this is a Viserys chapter. Mm -hmm. This is about him and about who he is. But I want to take this opportunity to kind of push back against you here, because I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, and I'm not trying to, to skew anything in terms of who he is and how fit he is. But I do want to put it into the context of the life that they've led. 
Danny expresses during this chapter the idea that home for her is where she has a bed. And what she wants more than anything else in the world is to go back to the place with the red door, which she associates with childhood, with safety. She wasn't alive for the traumas of the rebellion. He was eight years old and everyone around him died. A hundred percent of the people that he had known that made up his lifetime, his father, his mother, his uncle, who was the crown prince, his aunt, the entire structure, the whole power structure, and none of it could possibly be laid at his feet. He was too young for it. And so he spent a lifetime running from real or imagined dangers uh, in service of a dynasty that he's never really been a part of in reaction to a war that he had to observe as a child, but entirely from the outside. And I think that that's really worth noting. I mean, he's turned it into this violent streak, but it so clearly comes from trauma. And this is why I jumped in early. I, I shouldn't have cut you off and I should have let you go where you were going with it instead of taking it in my own direction. But every descriptor we get of him is nervous or anxious. He is, he is violently oppressive towards Daenerys, his younger sister, who he can physically control in that matter. And we get mm-hmm. that expression of physical control. But it's so obvious he doesn't have the ability to do that in anywhere else in his life. And that, that is sitting so firmly on his shoulders. And he's so aware of that. Yeah, I get it. I, I I will say though, as again, and I'm gonna like like I've been doing and I'll continue to do it, but like as a reader, right? And 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 not that I'm some incredible reader, but as the audience, you know, I, I found this chapter to be more of setting the stage. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of mm-hmm. like action, dynamic action between where things were and now where they're changing to. But I'll add, it wasn't lost on me that the age that Viserys experienced his his traumas, as you're referring to it, right? The ousting of his father as king, as the Mad King, and things like that, uh, is the same age that Bran is now. And I think that's yeah. like like a, like a theme that that seems to be happening over these past few chapters is the, and I I don't mean to sound pretentious as I say this, right? But like, but uh, you know, what does it mean? What happens to the knowledge we have as children as we mature and realize that it's not the whole truth? I think that what we're seeing is a story in Viserys that's a pretty typical one, especially in literature, of kind of arrested development. You know, his his whole experience of the ousting was through the eyes of somebody who really still believes in lore, you know, who really still would say, you know, as his, you know, his, I I don't know what the term would be in this world, right, but like his babysitter, his nanny, his whatever, his, you know, even his, his mother or whatever it might be, is telling him these experiences through the lens that we all speak to younger children and generations through. He's now, so many years later, you know, he still seems to be stuck in that perspective. He seems to have no conception of the reality he's in. He's still just a petulant child trying to, you know, accomplish a petulant child's dreams. Um, Yeah. I, I will say that I do definitely remember from the TV show where his storyline kind of goes. Uh, but I'll add, he is, I want to say this the right way, he is a uninteresting character to me at this point by virtue of his singular dimension. He has one thing yeah. on his mind and he doesn't have any real opportunity or, or, or infrastructure to, to pursue it. I, I'm hard-pressed to think that this enormous Hal Drogo, who's never had to cut his, you know, his hair for, for, because he lost a battle, right? He's, he's, he's undefeated in all his ways. The enormity of this man, that based on everything that this chapter kind of talked about, this family, the, Tar- the Targaryen uh, family, 
uh, I'm hard pressed to think that this this Cal Drogo will be shoved into a situation that he Cal Drogo doesn't want to be in, uh, right. which makes this Viserys character sort of this this gross leech of a character who's going to sycophantically stay by who, whomever he thinks is going to give him what he wants eventually. You know, and so again, Danny continues to be the interesting character in this chapter, in spite of having uh -huh. two sentences of you know dialogue. Like right, uh, so, so that's, that's actually that's a, a really good note. So let's kind of talk about the different thoughts that Viserys has in terms of how we go home. We go home mm -hmm. with an army, mm -hmm. and let's get your thoughts on on how plausible these things. Obviously, the primary thrust of this chapter is Danny gets brought to Khal Drogo's mansion to be introduced to him uh, in order to arrange a marriage pact by which Viserys will get use of Drogo's army. Sounds to me like we have an answer to this. You do or do not think that's the way Viserys is going to become king again. It's, it's not. I'll also add, <laughs> like, I don't think that's how it's going to work or how it'll play out. Okay, fair. But I do want to add as well that there uh -huh. is a, a very fun uh, dichotomy that I think George R. R. Martin throws in the some some of the perspectives in this chapter uh, versus the previous chapter, and it's specifically about quantity. Uh, I think you know Viserys says at one point that you know he only needs I'm making this up like a hundred men or it's, you know ten thousand. I think it was ten thousand. Yeah, I only ten thousand Dothraki screamers. Exactly, and that'll that'll win. And and for all I know, Dothraki screamers are the 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 violent of the violent, right? Like they are the best ninjas that are out there. But with that said, I can't help but think about King Robert riding up to the north and just how large his retinue is. You know, just how large this, this whole ensemble of knights and people that are coming with him. And I'm sure just it's to travel. Work. Yeah. And that's just a king going on a walk. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I'm hard pressed to, like, again, I go back to what I said before. This sounds like a petulant child who understands things through a petulant child's eyes. He thinks that he needs a minimal amount of you know soldiers to go and accomplish taking over a king well he does say and this was where i was headed next mm -hmm. he does say that it wouldn't be just about the dothraki screamers that he brings the realm will rise for its rightful king back right. home they all whisper how much they miss me and he specifically lists some houses tyrell redwine dairy greyjoy greyjoy Gray i also caught in there too it's okay it's, yeah it's, i was making uh, sure yeah and and again more into what I continue to feel throughout this, there's the finger is so far away from the pulse, it's eating chocolate covered pretzels. So you don't buy this either, is no. what you're saying. Honestly, anything okay. that Viserys is saying, I'm not, I don't think you're not on board with any of it. Reality. Right. I, I think that you know, his sister is the one that has value through virginity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like that's the sellable, that's the only thing that he has sellable, and he's about to sell it. And so yeah, that that's leaves all him, he's got left. Yeah, like yeah. Where does that leave him? Again, even interesting point. Even the the oh, and I'm, I apologize for not just having names in front of me, but the the one who had taken them in that that's introducing them to culture. Illyria. Illyria. Even he is pretty flippant with the service. He's not yeah. trying to piss them off, but he is not like bowing. He's not afraid of him. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's. No I like the line about uh, you know kings don't have the caution of normal men. Yeah. Is how he he saves himself when he tells Viserys effectively, "Hey, don't be a dick tonight." Yeah, and Viserys gets mad about it. Uh, I, I love that moment. I want to so, 
Yeah, sorry, go ahead. So the, the one other thing I wanted to add, because I don't think it's necessarily connected to what we've been talking about, but I do thought I, I did like it as, as a, not even a plot point, but just a, a, a character moment. Um, as Daenerys is being dressed to meet Cal Drogo, right? So her, her maidens are, are kind of like, like working on her. Uh, some, somebody shares how how the, the camp that she's going to, all of its slaves wear, uh, you know, collars of gold. And once she gets there, she she's very clear to point out that she realizes that they're just wearing, you know, regular collars, <laughs> like, like, yeah. uh, you know, that, that they're, they're not of gold. And this is something that really stood out for me, because even for the past handful of chapters, even the prologue, you know, there is a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of mythos. There's a lot of, you know, this sort of like, here's the the sort of mythological history and, and beliefs that we have towards something. We believe in these gods, we believe in this. This is now a different type of belief. We believe that this other camp has this type of wealth and all. And Daenerys is quick to realize that's not true. They don't mm -hmm. have that. There's a little, there's really a clear well, sense from her eyes. That I mean, I'll, I'll push back here. And I, I definitely see what you're saying with this, how she picks up and she's clearly very intuitive on these things. But it does seem like Khal Drogo has, has, everything that he's being sold as i mean he's operating out of this mansion in pentos mm -hmm. which is a city that's all about riches and he has security and he can host the high profile guests and he's big and strong and he's super hot i think jason momoa was a really great casting choice for him mm -hmm. uh and he's got this long braid with bells in it that symbolizes that he's never been defeated by anybody and she looks at him and she's terrified which is a totally reasonable reaction but it really does seem like broadly speaking he's living up to the hype she's not being married off into mm -hmm. you know it's being sold to her as some house of riches and she's being sent into poverty uh this is very very much so a leader and he seems to embody everything about that in a absolutely. way very contrasting with Viserys. no and i absolutely but i i do think that and i i guess i say this as something that i'd, I'd be i'm interested to pay attention to as i get to learn about daenerys more but i honestly like she is the only character i feel like i've met so far who is trying to pay attention to the reality of her situation yeah others seem to be really carried fair. with the the feelings of their situation or, or what they believe their situation to be. But Daenerys seems to only be similar to what you had even said earlier, right? She wants to go where she has a bed for herself. She She's very yeah. clear and explicit about what the things are that she needs, that especially she doesn't have. But I've enjoyed that she was able to kind of like have this, this presence of mind, not even presence of mind, but perspective, just this, this, this yeah. uh, observationality. It really struck me from that perspective too, this was the first time I ever noticed it because it's kind of buried at the end of a paragraph that is kind of like scene setting and very easy to kind of skim past. But she has this moment while she's being dressed by the servants where she hears children playing outside. Mm -hmm. uh, they're having fun and they're screaming the way children do. I mean, I live next to a public school playground so it's all I hear all day uh, when I'm working from home, but it's very much so that context where she's hearing the games and she thinks to herself, all she wants is to be out there with the children. And it says with no past and no future. And I think that that's such an interesting characterization for her here at the outset, that what she really wants more than anything isn't the crown. It's not the future that Viserys is laying out for her, but it's just a home. It's just somewhere with stability and safety for whatever that's worth for the poor people in this universe. But just to exist in that very basic sense, and uh, and that is completely denied her throughout this chapter, and presumably for the foreseeable future, uh, assuming she gets married off. Um, but that really does. I mean, the chapter just to wrap up sort of the narrative of the chapter. Yeah. We have all of this world, this world building through Viserys's storytelling, 
this is his experience of being, you know, or, or being part of the family that was dethroned. He's obviously an angry, angry man. He's angry at his sister for the death of his mother in childbirth. He's angry at being taken off. He sounds delusional about what is possible. He has these plans of how he's going to build an army. In fact, he's going to do it starting today by marrying off his sister, which I you know, don't think we talked about, but it sounds like the Targaryens only slept with one another. His sister always expected mm -hmm. to, you know, be wedded yeah, I was to bring him. that up. Uh, yeah, but instead he's going to sell her in basically to Cal Drogo so that he can get an army, uh, and that's that's where we find ourselves. They go from uh, again, I'm forgetting his name, Illyrio, Illyrio, Illyrio's sort of home where they've been staying based on Illyrio's charity. Uh, they go to the camp where Cal Drogo is. I I got the sense that this is why Cal Drogo's here was for this union i didn't think that there was much else for him to be there for but regardless yeah. uh they show up there daenerys gets scared understandably so i think she's a 13 year old at this point uh and she's about to be sold off to a very violent looking very intimidating man and uh, yeah Sarah again says, in my head I, I push that age up a little bit i think of her more yeah. like 15 16 but regardless all very the young. same but i'll uh i'll add to that and then i'll just say like that's that's literally where it is but sarah says don't ruin this for me yeah you I, you yeah. have one role here and it's to be sold do not ruin this for me and now and that that's it we're waiting for her to meet cal drogo i i, I am curious i'll add first of all not lost on me this, we're a very short amount of pages into this book it, yeah it, i'm curious about when there's going to be a switch from setup into action i'm not in a rush i wouldn't be surprised if it takes another 100 pages if uh -huh. not even more, you know, given the, the length of the series, given the length of the book. Uh, but but I am curious about it. I, I can see there being a lot more world building that happens in the Daenerys storyline. I can see a lot more happening in the Stark storyline, but I'm not, I don't know, nor am I in uh -huh. a rush, but there's definitely a lot of setup happening right now. Yeah, that is very reasonable. So to give you some additional world building here, we really talked about everything I was I was looking to, uh, but I'd start off with, once again, uh, this is a theme early on, and I think it'll probably keep happening for a little while, but uh, the a couple of names or references just for you to keep in the back of your head. The first one uh, he's focused on amongst a crowd of guests at the event, uh, but Sir Jorah Mormont is a knight from Westeros. He's from... Uh, an island called Bear Island. I'm not sure if that's mentioned, but I'll give it to you. It's off the west coast of the north. Um, so he comes from the homeland, and it's specifically mentioned that he has ended up here because he ran rather than go to the Night's Watch when he handed mm -hmm. over some poachers to slavers instead of them turning, turning them over to the Night's Watch. Uh, so I think that's just notable just because Will, of course, was a poacher who ended up in the Night's Watch. This is clearly, and it's almost like a, a penal colony in addition to where you send the Waymar Royces of the world. Uh, and instead of doing that, he sold them himself and then had to flee his homeland. So we don't get a ton more about him, but I just wanted to highlight him. A couple of other things to reference. We got a couple of mentions of the Red Priests over the course of this chapter. Yes. Uh, they are referenced in context that makes clear that they're pretty influential in Pentos. Uh, but other than that, we don't get a ton more about them. And then the other thing I'd say, which I actually had not realized until reading this time, uh, the guard that is running security at this is a member of something called the Unsullied. Unsullied, which I also noted. I wasn't sure what that was, but it definitely stood. Yeah. 
so this isn't going to come back up again for a long time, but I just thought it was cool. I wanted to highlight it here. The only thing we learn about them other than the outfit that they wear is Viserys calls him an insolent eunuch, and his physical description lines up with that, so we can assume he's a eunuch. Uh, it's mentioned that you know he, he looks like he doesn't have to shave and things like that, which is other stuff we learn about eunuchs as the series goes on. I can't say I had a ton of understanding of them before these books. Uh, but I thought you, those were just interesting things. the history of eunuchs as a kid? No, can't say I did. Uh, maybe I'll read into it at some point to bring up on the podcast. We'll see. Uh, I would also just mention uh, in the backstory here, we get our first mention of Rhaegar, who was the crown prince. This yeah. is Danny and Viserys' older brother, who is dead now. Uh, his wife, Princess Elia of Dorne, was also mentioned in this chapter, specifically that she witnessed the murder of her own children. We don't get a ton else about that. Uh, but the other thing which I wanted to ask you about is that there is a reference to Prince Rhaegar dying in battle against King Robert for the woman that he loved. He died for loving a woman. Any thoughts on that? Any idea who she is? Was it his wife? Uh, like, what are we doing here? I didn't have thoughts on it. I don't know so much of the storytelling in this chapter. I'm taking with a grain of salt. Yeah. The, so so there, there's having not met the met the king yet having not met the king's wife yet having do you know what i mean like, like so there, there's there's not a lot of it's hard for me to buy too much of the stories being told that's totally fair uh from that that same perspective i just also wanted to point out you know throughout this we get references to the usurper i think that's pretty obviously king robert mm -hmm. we get the usurper's dogs which includes the lannisters and the starks which i mm -hmm. think is kind of cool it's now flipping the framing we've had a couple chapters worth of ned stark being a great father and a great husband and really loving and really delightful and now we've moved across the sea to a context where he is the definition of evil he is the enemy uh yeah. he is exactly who they want to get revenge on uh so you know that's that's just an interesting flip of the frame that the the point of view perspective system really brings into focus but the uh the crucial thing that i wanted to talk to you about in terms of prediction you've talked a bunch about not believing the Sarah in terms of anything he says mm -hmm. which i think is reasonable uh i will warn you as a reader you know setting a hard and fast rule like that is a, a, a avenue to failure but that being said we get a brief discussion between him and Danny, where Danny says, all the clothes I'm wearing are Illyria's. All the jewelry I'm wearing is Illyria's. We get a reference that the sword, literally the sword Viserys wears is Illyria's. Mm -hmm. He's been putting them up for six months, and now he arranged this marriage. And she says, what is he doing? And Viserys says, well, he knows I'm going to be king someday, mm -hmm. and it's always good to be friends with the king. Do you buy that explanation? And if not, what do you think Illyria's up to? Or is he up to anything? Is he just, you know, I'm rich. Why not let these people stay here for a little while? Yeah, I honestly, like, and maybe this is too superficial of a reading, but businessmen be businessmen. I think that, you know, Illyrio saw the potential for uh, uh, making money off of his guests at some point. And I get the sense low, that- Low risk, high reward, I guess. Exactly. I, you know, it, it's- Again, I don't mean to sound pedantic, right? But, you know, I can't help but think of these two Targaryen children as young, tiny children. I know they're not, but that's how they seem. And it's, you know, if you if all they're you have to do off. is put up with some angry children for a little while before something else, then why not? So I, I don't know. As of right now, Illyrio is just 
just emergent to me. I, I think that, that I stand by what I had said earlier in, in our chat here tonight, uh, that, that he's allowing uh, Viserys to have the fantasies that he wants to have. Uh -huh. Um, but I don't know if there, like, like if there's some great, you know, like, like I'll say, as you don't example, know if he has an ulterior motive. Yeah. I, I don't have any reason to think that, you know, King, that he's the assassin King Robert has hired, you know, and that he's going to commit right. this assassination by, I mean, if he some, was, they'd be dead already. Right. But I just mean, even anything like that, that, like, I can't imagine there's too much more depth to his transactions right now, aside from money-making and getting rid of annoying children. All right. I mean, I guess that's fair. I, I just want to plant this seed for you, and I'm not going to tell you if it's right or not, but it, it it's emphasized throughout this chapter just how much Illyrio is spending on them. Uh, not in necessarily a literal sense, but in, in a capital sense. He is, is giving them everything they have. If it wasn't for him, they might be out on the street somewhere starving to death. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's, he's giving them everything they have, both in terms of what they're wearing and the, the material goods on them, but also in terms of his political connections. So I just want to put that out there. But with that, I, uh, I think that wraps us up. I took a, a quick look at the chapters that are coming up. I think we can do three again. Uh, okay. These are all going to go together pretty well. We have Eddard 1, John 1, Catelyn 2, I believe right. is the three chapters we have ahead of us. Okay. Uh, but I thought this format was pretty well. This was a good length. Uh, and uh, that'll set us up nicely, nicely for what's coming afterwards. Well, I'm excited to see where all of this goes. Dan, thanks so much. Yeah. And, you know, if, if Garrett comes back again, just keep an eye out for a guy with no ears, ears this time. I, I ears. thought should have been pretty recognizable, but... Well, who pays attention to a person's ears? Fair enough. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing Eddard 1, John 1, and Catelyn 2. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. And thanks, as always, for listening.